That's Willy Wonka. That's Oompa Loompa song. No, it's not. Loom Doompa. You're misinterpreting. I don't want you editing this so I sound like the dumb one. I've got a golden ticket. (laughs) (laughs) I want want final control of the content of this episode. You'll get what I give you and you'll be happy with it, all right? Because I'm lazy, that's true. (laughs) However, I want the principle to be noted. Okay, Mick Jagger, let's go. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trade Splitting. We're not just a podcast about trade. Okay, actually, we are. But we had a few dad jokes along the way and talked to some cool people as well. Dad jokes aside, this marks episode 14. 14 as in the atomic number of silicone. Also, the number of pounds. Maybe kilograms, actually. Uh, either way, it's a lot. Uh, I'm going to have to lose after one year of quarantine. 14 is also the number of years the Doha round has been going on for. Don't talk about that. Uh, anyway, anyway, later on, we'll also be talking with Pierre Sauvé of the World Bank on how services trade is different. Yes, really. Also, what is a trade and service? And why trade policy is not as boring as you thought? It's not boring. So I've heard. And as always, of course, we'll have the usual news roundup, information on your intrepid Geneva border guards, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, folks, welcome to this week's episode. Starting off with the hate slash love mail segment, I think we've decided to now call it the love or maybe like like mail segment. Neutral mail is also okay. Yeah, mail is fine because it lets us know that people are listening. Also that we have value. We feel alone out here. You're not alone as long as we have this podcast. And each other. Q Share and Sonny Bono. I got you, babe. There's an app for this, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Keep going. Like mail. A fan of the show recently tweeted at us to do an episode on the link between voluntary sustainability standards, it's a mouthful, That's and a trade. Lot. We, of course, had this idea I already. thought of that. Yeah, we thought of that. So we'll be doing a show on that. Yep. It's actually already in the works. So stay tuned. What's a voluntary sustainability standard? We have to tune in to find cut, out. Can you cut this? Won't you? So yeah. will all the listeners. Next, a local small business owner and frequent listener and maybe an in-law listened to last week's episode and said she's also a user of Infomaniac the company that Rob referenced in the news segment rundown last week. She also says it's actually better than Google, Facebook, and Tesla combined. So perhaps it can compete and also maybe sponsor this segment. Infomaniac, if you're listening. Be a trade-splaining-iac. And you're Geneva-based, so your sponsorship could be... Actually useful. Big. Yeah. Help me help you. Help us help In the words of Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Finally, another one told us, please do more episodes. Was that? That was somebody else. That wasn't us. That was a few people. Okay. And our response was... Yeah. Yeah, why not? But uh, be careful what you wish for. Because there is a, you know, like there's the Laffer curve in economics. Yeah. So the, you know, annoying trickles down also. Explaining curve. I don't know what's going to be trickling down, but it's definitely not going to be money. Keep those comments coming in. You can reach us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. That's trade.splaining at gmail.com. Well, Artie, it's time to get into the news recap, or as we call it, stuff that went wrong this week. It's no longer called stuff we just Googled. Five minutes ago. Five minutes ago, because that's not what <laughs> that we That definitely did not happen. We're not doing that. Definitely did not happen. So I know you wanted to lead with a, with a big development here in Geneva. Right. I think it would be remiss of us to not mention the fact that there is new leadership confirmed at the WTO. 
at UNCTAD, the UN Conference on Trade and Development. Them joining the International Trade Center also has a woman in leadership. I think it's super motivating there that this is the first time WTO has had a, a woman leader. I think UNCTAD, of course, she's acting, but to have three very strong women at the head of these organizations that are around uh, the issues of, of trade, around the issue of negotiation, trade promotion, this is a really uh, new day in Geneva. So congratulations to Dr. Ngozi on becoming the head of WTO and for Isabel Durant to become at least acting head of UNCTAD. And they, of course, join Pamela Coke Hamilton, who is the head of the International Trade Center, also here in Geneva. I think what we haven't mentioned yet is that also Dr. Ngozi is an African woman. So she's brought a whole new, I think, profile to Africa as a continent to, and, and I hope opening pathways for everybody to think more of Africa as a the future of trade, because it is in many ways, demographically, in terms of potential, however you want to look at it, in terms of uh, usable land for agriculture, in terms of potential, a lot of different kinds of resources, consumers, many ways. And of course, every day we're going to talk, every every episode we're going to talk about Facebook. Because uh, we know that's your favorite mode of communication. Medium. How do you, how well do you access your high school friends? This is the... Stalk your high school friends. A little bit. We had a big chill one summer. We were kind of looking some folks up. I actually <laughs> connected on LinkedIn with them. It's it's that, we're that, we're there now. 30 years later, it's we're there professional now. now. Yeah. So Facebook is now in the news. We've talked about how platforms work and how they might affect trade and services and, and how data works. And, and we talked about Google in Australia and they were in couples therapy. It was... It was complicated. Now there's a complication related to Facebook. Tell me about that. Facebook has become sort of a third wheel or had become. As you mentioned, Rob, we talked about how Google and Australia were in this sort of quote unquote couples therapy last week over this new law Australia seek to pass. And this this law would have made tech companies pay news organizations for any articles posted on their website. So there's quite a bit of back and forth. Google had actually threatened to shut down the search. Facebook actually went full Leroy Jenkins. And you will have to I Google didn't look that. that up. You yeah, will I have to Google up. that. For those of you listeners who don't know, just Google Leroy Jenkins. They went full Leroy Jenkins meme and just said that they would actually stop all news in Australia being shared on its platform. This had some negative effects. Coronavirus related news was withheld and was blocked from Australian citizens, which was an unforeseen consequence of this. However, a day after the Australian parliament passed the law, Facebook actually announced that it had signed on to a preliminary agreement with three news publishers in this country, with specifically Solstice Media, Schwartz Media, and Private Media. And no, I did not make those names you up. Make those names up. <laughs> <laughs> the full agreement. Did you Google those five minutes before the broadcast? Yeah. <laughs> So what these agreements do is they allow these companies to bring more of their what were paywalled content to Facebook directly because Facebook is now paying them. So why are we talking about this? Again, it just highlights the fact that news is a service, especially when you're transmitting it over the internet and across country lines. And it's showing how there's this sort of regulatory back and forth with the flow of information, content, money, whatever you're talking about amongst countries, right? So whether this is not only Australia specifically, but this is happening within the EU as well. And you're seeing different ways that countries or or economic blocks are going about this. So it's important to highlight the fact that there will be this sort of regulatory arbitrage between countries. So who can provide the best balance between consumer rights, broadly speaking, and the ability to get uh, information, content, whatever you want to call it, to these consumers. And, and I, another reason we talk about it is because these platforms are critical for the trade in the countries where we work. People use mm. Facebook a lot for selling across borders, you know, social sales. So you see something on a chat, you click, you buy. 
these platforms are becoming absolutely critical to small companies, to the transfer of payments, to people knowing about markets and so on. So we really need to see how this develops because it uh, will have an impact across not only trade and services, but also trade. I think that's, that'll be the most interesting thing. I don't think anybody knows which way it'll sort of settle, but I think it'll be interesting to watch. Okay, we're going to move from the new economy to the old economy. Here, I want to talk about shipping containers. Trade tech as Yang Fan called it. Trade and supply chains continue to be weirdly distorted. What's interesting about this particular crisis is that it's been a much shorter and sharper dip, for instance, than the, than the financial crisis, so that trade went down super rapidly in the first and second quarter of 2020 and popped right back up. But it created this distortion that continues so that we see containers are in the wrong place. Farm exports can't find a container. Domestic manufacturing in the U.S. is is kind of held up, and if you if you magnify this and add to it trade wars, semiconductor companies being blocked, and so on, you see even further more interesting and 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 more unpredictable distortions. Like car makers do not have enough semiconductors, so apparently each car has ninety or hundred semiconductors. They had what is a semiconductor? Listeners might be asking. Answer: We don't know. We just know that you need one in your phone, your car, and basically everything. So these supply chains are still remain weirdly distorted. The cost of a shipping container has gone up by by an amazing amount, eighty percent since November when we when we looked at this in February. People who normally spend their money on things like restaurants and theaters and so on are spending it on goods. In China, they're ramping up the production, but they also need the containers in order to get it back towards the U.S. And what we see in terms of market share also is that trade is increasingly moving to East Asia. The one exception, of course, is the U.S. So the U.S. market share in imports continues to go up. So I think it's an interesting time and it's difficult to see when this is going to get ironed out. And even now I see analysis that says it will lead to inflation. Mm. So all of these distortions are just pushing prices up. Trade wars don't help, even though obviously they are. I've been told they do. Easy to win. So that's where we are. And of course, Brexit contributed. What's that? (laughs) What's Brexit, (laughs) folks ask? So Brexit caused all sorts of distortions and all sorts of rigidities, which are now rapidly increasing prices and changing the way we trade. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to the cost of containers and these distorted trade flows once the economies start to open up again and we resume sort of normal activity. And so people start going to, I don't know, movie theaters or restaurants rather than ordering the latest box set of Goodfellas or The Godfather. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to prices. However, inflation is an important point. These trade wars have raised the cost of of basic inputs, and that is raising consumer prices and and inflation is a real fear heading into 2021. So it'll be interesting to, to to see how that plays out. I don't think anybody really has has a good answer apart from inflation is coming, mm. hashtag Game of Thrones. And this is all happening as the economy is opening up and potentially heating up even more. But I think it's also, it's a good segue into into Pierre Sauvé's interview, which is coming because he's, we're, we're talking with him about why does trade policy, Matt, what is all this? Why is it not boring, basically? Yeah. And the answer is, with these distortions in trade policy, the Brexits of the world, the trade wars of the world, the banning of Chinese semiconductor uh, manufacturers, these kinds of things, this has caused uh, recognizable, measurable increases in cost, and it hasn't really improved our quality of life. So this is why it's not boring. So I do have a question for you. What? If, okay, I don't have a car. We all know that. It's a thing. Yeah, it's because you're cheap. I don't have any place to park it. Anyway, we're moving on. (laughs) If I get a car, and if I get an Apple car, could that make me cool like you? It would if I had an Apple car. 
you would be as cool as I would. Could it connect to your watch? Oh, it would if I had an Apple Watch oh. or an iPhone. What is that watch? But this is a Fitbit. Oh, hashtag sponsor this. <laughs> <laughs> Recently bought by Google. Rob is being facetious and trying to be funny, but it is it is an interesting segue and also a build up for our conversation with with Pierre Sauvé, and that is that the Apple car has been in the news in the last month or so. And the reason is that Apple has been purportedly in talks with a number of different car makers, Hyundai, uh, Peugeot, among others, to be partnering with them to build the new Apple car. Why is this interesting? Why are we talking about it? Apart from the fact that it sounds cool, that makes us seem erudite, is the fact that... uh, Good work. Thank you. Is the fact that Apple would be putting most of its resources into the yeah. software behind the car. So they would be outsourcing, putting together the metal slabs and tires and rubber and so on, which would be another car company. So why is this interesting? It's the fact that we're wondering, is it a sign of the way things will continue to go, where companies decide to unbundle parts of the value chain well done <laughs> to, to other thanks baldwin to, to other geographies while retaining the areas where the most of the value addition i think it's i think it's a super interesting example of that so cars we think of as the classic manufacturing supply chain and yet apple's saying the car part of it isn't the important part the part the important part is the design part of it the software part of it and let's say the lifestyle brand part of it and they can hire anybody Peugeot, to do the rest and i think that's a very interesting in terms of thinking of how do we even define what's a manufacturing, export a manufactured product, and what's a service? And on a more macro slash superficial level, I think this links back to our discussion with Richard Baldwin in that what does this mean for car manufacturers or people who work in the manufacturing industry in these these countries, say the mm-hmm. Peugeot or, or Hyundai or, or whatnot, they will be getting the least valuable part of the Apple car, right? Where they become gig, gig economy jobs. Yeah. Pierre Sauvé is a senior trade specialist in the Geneva office of the World Bank. He leads the bank's work on trade governance and has previously served in various roles in academia, including at the University of Bern's World Trade Institute here in Switzerland, where he maintains a visiting professorship appointment. Pierre's principal research interests lie in trade and services, regulation of FDI, comparative regional integration, so looking at the way different regional initiatives have worked, and the political economy of a multilateral trading system, so around WTO and how people work with that. His latest book, co-authored with Dora Neo and Imola Strejo, is entitled Services, Trade, and ASEAN, The Road Taken, not The Road Less Taken. I thought it was The Road to Serfdom. And The Journey Ahead. Hashtag Hayek. (laughs) Published by Cambridge University in 2019. I'd also like to point out that Mr. Sauvé is not in fact a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. Wait, what? It's probably an oversight. Uh, Nobody tell Rob. He also, I should point out, has no relation whatsoever to the Johnny Depp cologne commercial. Uh, That's Sauvage, not Sauvage. My, my French is Sauvage. a bit rusty. Anyway, on to the interview. So, Pierre Sauvé, thanks a lot for joining us to Tradesplain. Looking forward to the conversation. I want to start off just to have you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the field of trade? And a little bit what the journey's been like. My mistake, I think. It was a typo. <laughs> Always a good start. No, I, I, I actually did my graduate work on more on macro financial issues, not so much trade. And yet coming out of grad school, the first job offer I got was to join the premier's <laughs> office in Quebec, in, in Quebec City, to work on the Canada-US FTA negotiations. In the meantime, I got married to a French woman who had a very tepid appetite for Canadian winters. And so 
after spending two winters in Quebec City, and winters in Quebec City are pretty harsh, she said, we move back to Europe or you need to call a lawyer. And so we moved to Europe and I landed a job, strangely enough, at the uh, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel. And within a year in Basel, was absolutely convinced that uh, monetary policy is boring. You know, you need central banks and you need central bankers, but I'm just not very keen on having lunch with them. It it took you a year. Uh, And and so (laughs) I saw an ad in The Economist for 15 positions in the GATT secretariat. I applied and mercifully, I I got selected and moved back into the world of trade and have been in that ecosystem ever since. But in very different guises, in in the sense that I've, I've, I've sort of moved around from working in international organizations. So I've worked at the GATT, I worked at the OECD, I'm now at the World Bank. But in between, I I went to government. I was in the Canadian negotiating team for NAFTA. And then I spent about 14 years in academia at the Kennedy School at Harvard and then at the World Trade Institute here in, in Switzerland, in Bern. So I've had this sort of meandering career between academia, practice, and I.O. work, but it's been a very rich experience, sort of practicing trade from all conceivable angles. And you've been punished by twice having to negotiate with the Americans. And still still bear the scars for doing so. (laughs) So the last 12 months have been crazy. We all know that. I think one could argue, though, that things have been getting a little crazy for even longer than that. Have the events of the past five to 10 years, maybe even recently also, have they changed your, your views on trade? They reinforced them? Is, is you more or less optimistic? It's a good question. Trade has been on trial in the way that globalization has been on trial for quite some time. And what we've seen is in the last 10 years, a progressive slowing down of the pace of globalization. So the crisis, of course, ushered in uh, a very dramatic drop in cross-border exchanges. Now, has my view of trade changed? Not really. I mean, I remain convinced that trade is a, is a force for peace, certainly. It doesn't, you don't get good repeat business if you shoot at your neighbor. And trade is clearly a force for economic growth uh, and development. We've seen that in spades. By any metric you can look at that is trade-related, is very closely associated to very significant gains in income, convergence overall. And I, I ask, when I was teaching at the WTI in Bern, I would always ask my students, why does trade matter? And the best answer I ever got from a student was a three-word answer which I think sums it up. He said, because autarky sucks. <laughs> and, and so I remain optimistic. We are going to recover from, from this crisis and trade is going to remain, in my view, a very potent force of cooperation and convergence. So part of this, let's say, transformation over the past 10 years has been the importance of services, trade, which I know you've thought a lot about, and it's become hugely important for competitiveness overall, living standards, knowledge, jobs, all the things we've been discussing over the past few weeks with people like uh, Richard Baldwin and uh, Ziyang Fan from the, from the WEF. But trade mm-hmm. in services is still quite constrained by a lot of rules, a lot of rigidities, difficult to negotiate, and people still don't really understand it. So why, why do you think that? It, what's the blockage? I think it's a number of things. It's, it's first the intangible nature of the activity itself, which is difficult to measure. What is the value of a service? 
service. We know very clearly what the value of a good is because we can add up the cost, the physical cost of the cost of physical inputs. Services involve primarily the application of knowledge to transformative activities, and it's it's much harder. So that's one one reason. Second one is the sector is incredibly diverse, and so each sector brings with it a range of challenges of a regulatory nature. The currency of negotiations and services, unlike goods, is regulation, domestic regulation. So we are in services 100% in the realm of non-tariff negotiations. We know from goods negotiations that it's far easier to negotiate at the border using mathematical formula to reduce tariffs progressively than to address non-tariff measures behind borders. And of course, the political economy of regulation is complex and of course differs by sector. And it's very difficult in services negotiations to change your domestic regulatory regimes at the behest of trading partners. I don't like the way your telecoms regime is done. Change it. Well, no, I'm not in the mood to change it because there's a lot of history and and politics and industry interests. So we talk with people like Richard Baldwin and he says uh, Globotics is coming. So everything's converging. And soon my job as a middle manager is, gonna, is going to go poof. And uh, that a lot of these rigidities that we've had before that have in a way protected white collar jobs, so they protected services jobs, are, are going to melt away in some way or they're going to be overtaken by technology. So some of the, th- the, the domestic regulations and so on you mentioned are no longer relevant. Is that happening? I mean, the scope for, for technology-induced arbitrage is, is happening. We see that in some sectors. So there is some truth to Richard's vision of the world. But of course, he has to sell books, so he has to come up with sexy titles and sexy concepts. But I think there are very significant segments of the service economy that I wouldn't say are completely immune to to these trends, but we're going to require face-to-face interaction for for quite some time. So I'm not as pessimistic as he is, nor am I prone to believe that technology is going to replace service workers as fast as it has in, in, in manufacturing to some extent. And even where we do that, it's creating jobs elsewhere in the service economy, in engineering and IT design and so on and so forth. So it's a turning. And we are here again and confronted with the the reality that trade and the changes that technology induces on trade affects the nature of work more than the aggregate number of jobs in in the economy. Even though there is no doubt that we are entering a world in which technology is increasingly labor-saving. For the record, though, globotics is a cool word. Itself. So kudos to, to Richard for coming up with and and that, that helps sell his books and power to him. Unbundle my heart is also gonna win a Grammy. <laughs> Watch out, Tony Braxton. We've been re- we've been looking for unbundled jokes, and we, did, we I don't think we got any out that episode. Our jobs are gonna be unbundled soon. <laughs> so I, I think that's a good lead into the next question, which is inequality, broadly speaking. So it's obviously increasingly on people's minds more and more when we talk to regular folks as well as people like you. But trade has been fairly or unfairly blamed for a large part of this, right? And I guess you can bundle in say well done. There yeah. you go. You can bundle in investment into that as well, or unbundle it if you prefer. So is that conclusion correct? Because we see a lot of people who've come on recently have said that focusing on just trade should not necessarily be the be-all and end-all, but rather the 
what Richard Baldwin calls a flanking policy or what others have called sort of spin-off effects or trade and environment. Yeah. So is it correct? In trade, we tend to assign too much to trade. We expect trade to perform miracles. And then when it doesn't, we tend to over-blame trade for all sorts of problems that, that arise. So we over-promise the impact of trade and, and we, we sometimes underestimate as well the impact, the, the usefulness of, of the structural transformation that trade can bring about. There's no one answer to the question of trade and inequality. I mean, if you think about the, the, the convergence that we've observed in income levels between developed and developing countries, the catch-up that's been very dramatically driven by trade and investment integration, the world has become more equal. The problem is that in all of our societies, our societies are becoming more, more unequal. Internally. And you have to look, of course, trade can be a vector of that process, certainly. But we have to look at other factors, which I think are far more significant. The impact of technology and the skill bias that is embedded in how technology is deployed. As we said earlier, replacing people with machines tends to reward those that either own the machines or design them and can be very harsh on those who used to work with those machines as they are replaced by them. The rise of the service economy itself is probably a source of inequality to the extent that workers in service industries, especially the gig industry, are very poorly protected and so contributes to the ebbing influence of trade unions on wage bargaining. That is clearly a very major source, I think, of inequality. We also live in a world in which we have superstar firms, superstar individuals that reap outlandish rewards, whether they play soccer or tennis or own shares in Amazon or Google. Also, very deliberate policy impacts. We have seen in recent decades an ebbing of the influence of competition law. And that goes back to Reagan-Thatcher years, where we decided that consumer welfare was more significant, more important than market concentration in, in guiding competition policy decisions. And so we have left uh, very, very large firms dominate sectors uh, where the rewards to those superstar firms are enormous. And we have not prosecuted monopolistic or quasi-monopolistic market positions as we would have in earlier times. So there's a confluence of factors. And of course, I wouldn't deny that trade plays a role, but I think we have to look at a much wider set of parameters in determining what is driving inequality. The next question that we wanted to talk about is how does policy fit into all this? So if I'm looking at a layman, policy is not sexy. It does not sound like something they'd want to, to dig into, although it is important. Now, the question is, again, how does it fit into this discussion of, of inequality that we've been talking about and, and market concentration and things like this? Is it possible that good policy can mitigate the type of cynicism we see from regular folks? And what are some good examples of trade policy actually bettering people's lives? Well, I, I, I think your question really puts the finger on what I think is perhaps the most important aspect of any conversation on trade that is informed, and that is trade in itself alone and not do it all. We're back to what do we assign to trade in terms of core policy objectives and what roles should we be assigning to social policy and education policy and innovation policy and so on as complements to what we're trying to do. Trade appears intuitively as very much a macro phenomenon, but in reality, trade policy is really an instrument of microeconomic adjustment and its role is to facilitate orderly adjustment, orderly and necessary adjustment. 
In a way, for trade to work, to use a film analogy, I would say there must be blood. There will be distributional consequences from, from trade policy, from opening your market. There will be winners and losers. We know that. And governments are right to move in the direction of liberalization if the aggregate gains to gainers outweigh the losses to losers, and then you find ways domestically of compensating. And how do you compensate? Well, you compensate through these flanking policies. First, first of which, and the most important of which is reskilling and investment in education and vocational education and so on. Societies where trade is not a big dilemma. Take Switzerland. There's no conversation on trade in Switzerland. Why? Because the Swiss labor market is so flexible in finding good jobs that pay well for people at at any skill level. Trade is not a hugely controversial issue in Canada because we have social policies that protect individuals from shocks, you know? I grew up in Montreal and the number one industry, the number one employer in my hometown when I was a kid was textiles and clothing. Can you believe that? And that's not that long ago. And today the two top employers in the city are software and civil aviation, aircraft aircraft equipment, aircraft parts. And this has a lot to do with trade policy because Canada has progressively over time given up protecting an industry, textiles and clothing, in which there had there were low wages, low productivity, and preventing developing countries from taking over these segments and growing their way up in, in, in that way. And so trade promoted an orderly process of microeconomic structural change. And trade policy, if it's done well, buys you time, buys you time politically to make that structural change acceptable to society. But it's only acceptable if you, of course, put in place the flanking policies that allows society to just adjust and not bleed to death, but, but move on. Pierre, I've got to I've got to come in here because it, the trade is an issue here in Geneva. People are trying to bring meat across the border to get around twenty kilos of twenty meat. kilos of meat. They're trying to bring across the border to get around the border taxes. Speaking of, there will be blood. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> there will be blood if you bring meat across yes, the border, exactly. and you know, especially today with the border restrictions, that that meat is going to melt. As long as, it's got, as long as it's got a, a, a PCR test. So, Pierre, your work focuses on both trade and investment policy. So we talk a lot about trade. We don't investment explain yet. Could be a spinoff. Trademark. Uh, but, of course, they're closely related. Can you explain the relationship and how maybe that's changed over this period we've been talking about past five, 10 years? I mean, I think just to have a sellable podcast on that, you're going to have to come up with a better moniker than investment explaining. There's long. just something wrong with that title. Investors would help. Yeah. <laughs> This is an interesting aspect, and, and again, full of paradoxes here. Trade and investment used to be alternative ways of accessing markets. You either jumped over a tariff by investing in a foreign market, or you traded. So you had high tariffs that really had a major impact in making trade and investment alternatives and not complements. The very success of the GATT in reducing tariffs over time, and of course, the emergence of the multinational enterprise as a major actor in globalization, the establishment of cross-border value chains, has completely sort of altered the nature of the relationship between trade and investment. And today, trade and investment are inherent complements, not, not substitutes for each other. And so that begs the question is, we have highly sophisticated norms globally governing trade, cross-border trade, and yet there is a missing 
multilateral regime for investment, which has proven very, very difficult to negotiate in recent years. And in a way, the reasons for the missing multilateral regime for investment lies in, again, a question of inequity. Investment law has been so profoundly biased towards protecting investor rights and not caring much about the rights of host states that you have in the very design of investment law such profound biases that it's become toxic. And so it's proving very, very difficult globally to integrate as we should, because trade and investment are co-vectors, if you want, of globalization. But we don't have a system of governance globally for investment. And that's that's really a bit of a paradox. We are able to do that in, in regional agreements, regional trade agreements, preferential trade agreements. They address investment and trade side by side. But we've never been able to migrate that architecture globally. And that is really a missing piece, I would say, in global governance. On that high note, this is the expat Geneva, broadly speaking, focused part of part of our discussion. If you've listened to, to the podcast before, you'll, you'll know what to expect. So we'll start off with the first question, and that is, we understand you, you live in Versailles, and Rob was particularly interested to know whether those mirrors get on your nerves, because they must be difficult to clean. I was more concerned with the fact that it didn't work out for the last guy who lived there too well. So does that worry you? Yeah, and I, I live, if you look at the map of Versailles, I live on a square, which is called, in the middle of which there was a guillotine during the revolution. So from my apartment, I would have had a bird's eye view of the slew of aristocrats about to lose their head right in front of my of my house. So you're right, that didn't end too well. So what's it like watching Canada from, from abroad? I have now spent almost two thirds of my life away from Canada. So it's it's a funny it's a funny thing, but I still feel Canadian, even though I have also a French passport. My wife is French and my kids are French and I've been living in France for a very long time. It remains a country that does well, that has a level of societal temperance, I would say, that I admire. And and so yeah, I, I'm still I still look back on Canada with, with fondness. And when I go back, I feel very much at home and I miss the hockey very much. That said, we are also wimps. We have a propensity to be wimps. And I, you see that in, in Off the ice. Off the ice, for sure. We are so politically correct that it's it's at times almost farcical. But it's the flip side of, of people Being who are nice. extremely nice and polite and try to be try to be nice on an MFN basis. So I guess that leads us perfectly again to the next question. And that is, have you ever had your bike stolen in Geneva? Or Canada, or Versailles, or Versailles. One of the one of the things I've always tried to do in my life is to be able to walk to work, to live so close to work that I would walk. So I've never actually used a bike. I have a bike, but I don't use it much, and I've never had it stolen. But my son here in Versailles recently took my bike instead of his to go out with some friends and had my bike stolen. So I was really pissed off. He was just too lazy to pick up his, which was a bit further down in the locker room. Are we sure it was stolen or maybe just didn't remember? It was one of those things. Actually, physically aggressed. Some oh, sort of... Wow. Yeah. So a bunch of people got around him and said, give us your bike. And not even my bike. Take it. And, and he too. said, it's not mine. Take it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my it. dad's. And it was an old bike. so it's, I didn't like it anyway. I survived. I survived that episode. And he survived it as well. He yeah, was wise. That's well, well, thank God for that. So while we're on that, is it true? I've heard, me and Rob have heard this yeah, uh, a rumor that in Canada, it. they're so nice that when they steal your bike, they actually call it borrowing. Is that true? <laughs> 
No comment. <laughs> and is there a platform? I guess in the U.S., if your bike gets stolen, you go on Craigslist. Is there is there a Canadian yeah. equivalent? Yeah, or, or 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 they would apologize for for stealing it. Yeah. I don't know if they would say I borrowed it, but they would apologize. I'm so sorry, I had to steal your bike. Leave a nice note. That that may well be the case. I doubt it, however. Okay, this podcast is also scientific, and we're collecting data. And as the National food of Geneva is kebab. Mm. And so what is your favorite kebab place in Geneva? Normally, there are two alternatives, Alamir or Parfum de Beirut. And only one right answer. I I, I go with Parfum de Beirut. I'm just addicted to that place. Ding, I like ding, the ding. people. I like the service. I like the vibe. I like the costs. I like the prices. And the food is just delicious. Yeah, Parfum de Beirut is my favorite place by far. Good answer. Okay. That's the most, that, that's actually the, the uh, I think we can end that poll because that's now that's we've now gotten the correct answer okay fine. <laughs> <laughs> i think we have to liberate you thanks a lot for the time that you spent with us this Pierre has Sauvet. been fun i really enjoyed it we learned a lot no it's a pleasure thank you pierre it's uh, it's been fun i hope we can meet again in in 3d soon Okay, time for this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva. What's first, Rob? Well, what I see here is something called Kimye. No, 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 no. Kimye, yeah? for those of you who don't know, is Dunye. Does that mean they're going to stop with that, that podcast? That, that, if you stop creaking, I'll tell you. Kim Kardashian announced that her and Kanye West are getting divorced. You know why this is a trade issue? Why? I have no idea. Because our Yeezys will be more expensive. <laughs> But also, they're a massive force in trade and services. But what are they trading? Or what are they buying? What are they uh, selling? Music. Image. Rights. And social. sneakers. Yeah. Would you wear those? Sex. Expensive. Yeah. That's why I'm not wearing them. Oh. Will Google Australia be able to show them on the search? Let's just move sure on before we get an email from their lawyers. Let's get right back now. to reality. Things that people really care about. So the authorities on the Geneva border remain ever vigilant to protect us at the Fernay border, just across the way here. Many, many cars pass. But in this case, a couple, perfectly normal, I assure you, was passing. They said to the authorities they had nothing to declare. As one does. As one does. Our intrepid customs, as you know, always on the beat for us. Didn't believe it. They said, hey, wait a minute. What is that in the in the back of the car? Hey there, Delilah. 61 kilograms of spring rolls. Officer, parentheses, that's for personal use. So apparently the couple has a restaurant in Geneva. And according to the news report, these spring rolls were sequestered and then, and I use air quotes here, destroyed. See, eaten. Anyway, what else? What else we got this week? Well, there's also a big development, and this is every year, but we do need to be reminded this is, it's toad mating season. Oh. The toads will be mating shortly in Geneva. Geneva police tells us at some points it takes 20 to 30 minutes for a newly awoken toad, a toad that's coming out of hibernation to cross the road. So they ask, don't take that shortcut. Don't take the logging road. Don't go by the, the little forest. We need to let those young men and women Toads, get across that road, get to that pond, and make what? There's there's actually a, a song for that, for the people who don't stop and accidentally hit those toads with their cars. Here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> Lord, I couldn't believe it. I saw the facial expression, but I didn't know where it was Ba-ba. going. So those of you who are here, Geneva authorities say, take a picture. If you see toads coming across, send it to them. Tell them where it is. Give them a GPS location. And they will come out and protect those toads. They've set up some toad crossing points. And by the way, folks, as you remember every season, if you do hear some guttural noises or there are some ripples in the local pond, it's not Rob clearing his throat. It's not me. You may hear these on the podcast. It's not a toad. I think that's it for local nose. Uh, Nose, news, whatever you call it. Nose is what I have. Well, folks, I know you're expecting Rob to to end this but it actually says rob in the script but it's actually me who's going to be doing this because leroy jenkins this about wraps up this week's episode we'd like to thank our guest pierre sauvé for joining us don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already and subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon 
And feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Tradesplaining or email us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. It just doesn't flow off the tongue when you do it. I think we should just stick to our comparative advantage. What is this Instagram? It's only pictures. Yeah, How are you like, supposed to read that? You talking about Instagram is like me talking about quilting or writing by candlelight. We never needed that when I was a kid. Yeah. Ke- kerosene lamps. What are those like? It's like me talking about that. It's just not, it's unnatural.